Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We're hearing about a lot of cool new COVID treatments from a nasal vaccine to a pill from Merck. Let's bring in Lauren Sauer right now from the uh, Johns Hopkins University. Um, Lauren, uh, what do you see in terms of the um, uh, the, the front runner here for the elusive antiviral uh, COVID quest? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all so stunned by how quickly the vaccine work happened and how, how fast we got vaccine into arms and are getting vaccine into arms that now we can sort of take a breath and think about the therapeutic side and um, really start to ramp up the, um, the novel approaches. So a lot of the early work was on repurposing drugs and trying out monoclonal antibodies, trying out convalescent plasma. Um, and, and now we're going to see innovation, which I think is great. This, this new um, approach by Merck and Ridgeback is really exciting because a pill is something we don't have right now that can easily be given in the outpatient setting or, you know, through a pharmacy or even mailed to people um, to really reduce their, that, individual patients need to come in and and get therapeutic treatment like um, an infusion or something like that. So for me, this is a really exciting step. I mean, it's got to go through all the regulatory processes just like everything else, but I'm thrilled to see this work. Lauren, you know, I had dinner last night with a group of friends for the first time in a year. You know, we ate outside, we all felt comfortable, but what was fascinating to me was everybody at the table either had their vaccine or like me were scheduled to get it the next few days and we talked a lot about vaccine hesitancy um i i just you know there's a lot of folks out there think that this is going to be a big big issue how are you guys what are you what are you hearing at the johns hopkins university what's been your experience i think there is still a lot of vaccine hesitancy and i think it's in um in many cases it's in the communities that are most impacted by COVID 19 and we really have to focus our efforts on educating um people who are vaccine hesitant about the benefits, the risks, the, um, the the way the vaccine came to be and what that regulatory process looks like to ensure their safety. I also think it's really important to work with community members so that um, if we can do the work to reduce the hesitancy and people decide, yeah, I do want to get my vaccine, that immediately they're linked to the space to get that vaccine and have access so that um, they can get the vaccine quickly because there's nothing worse than doing all the work to to help someone to understand, to make them feel safe, to make them feel like the process is rigorous and careful and protective, and then not be able to give them vaccine or to have them not be able to access vaccine. It's a tough one. Uh, I think Carl Sagan said you can't convince a believer of anything if their beliefs <laughs> are not based in fact. Um, and I'm sure that could apply to many people who are hesitant to get vaccines. On the other hand, there have been vaccine disasters in history, but this clearly looks safe. Um, Has there been any issue, uh, any major issue arising from vaccines so far? Um, The vaccines are looking unbelievably safe. And I think we're all really excited, thrilled, relieved to see that Um, the data that continue to come in show safe and effective vaccines and the vaccines that weren't 
effective or removed early in the process, showing that our process does work. You know, I think with the with everything that's happening with the AstraZeneca vaccine right now, um, it is still a safe and effective vaccine. I think where we're seeing the problems is in the communication around it. And it just demonstrates the absolute need for clear and efficient communication around, um, you know, what the process looks like and what the safety checks are. Because it doesn't matter how safe your vaccine is, if you mess up the communication around it or the public feels like they're being misled about it, then, then you've lost the public on that vaccine. Yeah, exactly. So, Lauren, how about the the variants out there? I know they're providing, you know, some challenges for, you know, the vaccine makers and healthcare workers. What do we know about the ability the of the spike, existing right? vaccines to kind of Paul, deal they're with driving? It? it looks like they're driving the spike, at least here. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what do you see in terms of those variants? Yeah, I think there's a lot of work being done to look at the variants and to better understand. Um, you know, for example, when we see vaccine breakthrough, is it from a certain variant? Is it from, you know, a certain impact of the variants on the the case? And and one of the things that will help us determine that is that this continued push towards more sequencing efforts, more genomics work around the virus. So when we get those cases of vaccine breakthrough um, or we get these these new spikes in in cases, are we looking to see what variant? Do we have visibility on what variant, if it's a variant at all, um, is causing that? And that is a that is a global effort right now. But I think there's a lot of work to do there. You know, particularly in the U.S., we have a lot of sequencing work to catch up on. Hey, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate chatting with you at this time every week as we learn more and more about this virus, more and more about therapeutics, and then thankfully more and more about vaccines. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Uh, We should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies and this Bloomberg Radio and TV Operations. I want to go over to Hans Olsen. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Fiduciary Trust, and he's got about $19 billion of assets under management in Boston. Hans, we see some green on the screen today. It's, I guess, the reopening play um, on again. What do you think about markets with more room to run here? Well, I definitely think we have more room to run. Uh, the reopening play, um, I think, is, is, you know, we're into it, but I think there's more to go, especially when we get, um, you know, the successive ways of stimulus that'll come in, for, in the form of um, uh, infrastructure spending and human capital um, um, spending that uh, the administration is talking about. So I think there's definitely more to come uh, through the next quarter or so. And then at some point, uh, we'll start to have to reckon with how we pay for um, all of the stimulus. Yeah, that's a, a good point there, Hans. I mean, there's definitely been some concern in the marketplace over the last <clears throat> several weeks about inflation uh, creeping into this economy and whether it's maybe even if it's good inflation or maybe not so good inflation. How are you thinking uh, about the, those inflation worries in the market? Yeah, I often thought the, the, the inflation worries would be a natural companion to the recovery story, right? It would be only a matter of time between from when people focused about the economic woes to potentially inflation problems down the line. And so I, I think this is all rather um, 
uh, sort of normal in the in the pace of markets. I do think, though, these I'm sympathetic to these inflation worries, you know, but I think they might be a bit premature. After all, we're still about 10 million people fewer uh, lighter uh, in the uh, labor market than we were roughly last time this year, and there have been some changes in the in the commercial markets, the labor markets that I'm not sure we fully appreciated yet. If, if you were working at a you know a Kmart or a Lord and Taylor, there's no job for you to go back to, and and if you look at hospitality and the travel industry that were built really on a very profitable business traveler, uh, that is going to change. So, I mean, those are just a couple of instances, the way that the pandemic has probably changed our commercial lives that are yet to be fully, um, fully appreciated. So I think inflation, while it's certainly problematic, is probably a concern for, for another day at this juncture. But, I mean, uh, as the Fed tries to push down the U6, which is at 11.1% right now, surely – especially together with fiscal, they're going to bring on some inflation in, do, in doing that. Eventually, it, it would be reasonable to expect inflation to, to rise. And you would see, you're seeing this already happening, I guess, uh, uh, really more worries about how they fund it all, right? And you're mm. seeing a bit of a rebellion in the bond market. If you look at, uh, at the shape of the curve over the last, uh, since the end of, let's say, January, um, the, the, the 10, 20 year, um, or, or they're up about half to three quarters uh, of a, of a uh, percentage point. So that's a, that's a pretty big move. And you've had a couple of uh, bond auctions, uh, seven-year auctions of late that have gone poorly. So I think there's a bit of a rebellion going on in the, uh, in the bond market. It makes one wonder whether the Fed will be forced into some sort of full-on yield curve control as a result. You know, I, lo- uh, I, I love to look at, Hans, on the, on the Bloomberg terminal, debt go is a very simple function that shows you the owners of U.S. Treasuries. And, of course, the Federal Reserve line has just skyrocketed as Japan, China, UK, they all stay at similar similar levels. How difficult do you think it's going to be to fund, especially when Biden comes out with a three or four trillion dollar infrastructure package? Well, already you have I think it's going to be tough and it's going to force probably the Federal Reserve to step in to be the buyer of last resort. You know, if you look at um, selling um, over the last several years of U.S. Treasuries by uh, foreign investors, you know, we're, we're, we're hitting some pretty big selling. They're voting with their feet. Uh, and it's obvious, it's obvious that they're concerned about uh, the fiscal direction of the country, whether it's sustainable or not. So uh, who buys this? And more importantly, at what price they buy this debt is something that we're going to have to work out uh, in the months ahead. And especially, right, especially as we think about another three, maybe four trillion hitting the markets, uh, that, that needs to get financed. And then uh, part of that's going to be financed through uh, uh, rising taxes. So that's going to have an implication for the after-tax return on equities that we'll have to start thinking about. Hans, talk to us about emerging markets here. I, you know, we've heard <clears throat> really over the last uh, several months in particular kind of a rising uh, interest in emerging markets as people, as investors globally search for yield and returns. How are you guys thinking about that at Fiduciary? Yeah, I'm thinking about it more in the context uh, of both growth and currency. Um, you know, emerging markets, they are they're going to be – I think in fine form in terms of the uh, uh, the growth posture, probably double two x that of the developed world. So, so there's a good story there. Um, their fiscal uh, position tends to be a lot better than the developed world, and and I think even though that the dollar has been strong lately, the reality is that we're we're running massive uh, twin deficits, and that's never a good thing for for the dollar. 
Uh, and so I think if we look forward, you know, a year, two years, we're going to see a lower currency. Um, the dollar is going to get sorely tested. And with that, uh, international markets uh, should catch a nice bid, especially the emerging markets, which are particularly sensitive to that. Um, so I think emerging markets are a great play right now, uh, number one. And number two, if, if we look beyond, right, what the goings-on are in Europe with their problems with their vaccines, uh, which are which are significant. Yep. But if mm-hmm. you look at markets there right now, they're telling you that there's a turn there. Markets, uh, the the local currency return in those markets this year has been really quite good, right. much better than the U.S. indeed. Hans, thanks so much uh, for joining us and sharing your thoughts. We always appreciate that. Hans Olson, Chief Investment Officer for Fiduciary Trust based in Boston, talking about kind of where they are allocating some of the money, where the folks at Fiduciary are seeing some opportunities, talking a little bit about the emerging markets. Again, potentially an area of opportunity, particularly against his weaker dollar outlook. Well, over the past year, the pandemic has opened up several new legal battles, from deaths tied to COVID outbreaks on cruises to concerns at the workplace and even fraud tied to stimulus payments. It all adds up to a mountain of new litigation. Some of it's tied to laws that date back a 100 years, while other complaints are garnering calls for new legal measures. We get more on the matter from Greg Jarrett in this Bloomberg Radio special report. Many things have changed in this time of pandemic, from where and how we work to what we wear, how we marry, how we recreate, and how and why we sue each other. Pandemic-related lawsuits are expanding and new law is being created from workers' comp claims, suits against healthcare companies, hotels, airlines, and possibly the most recognized cruise lines. Who can forget the images of ships unable to dock or docked and unable to disembark like the Grand Princess owned by Carnival Corporation, which was stuck in San Francisco Bay? Nancy Nishimura of Kachet, Petrie, and McCarthy famed torts firm says they're hampered in their lawsuits by a law passed in 1920. The Death on the High Seas Act, also known as DOSA, D-O-H-S-A, was designed to simply compensate only money for the amount the person had earned, maybe funeral and burial expenses, and very little more. And DOSA has not grown up to meet the needs of the world now. And it was not designed for the cruise line world. It really was not. Nishimura says that law has empowered the cruise lines. The cruise ships feel impervious to liability. And I think that's a motivating factor for why they continued to sail, even though they knew that Carnival in particular had one of its cruise ships already under quarantine in Japan from February. Our clients set sail afterwards. Nishimura thinks one of their wrongful death suits has a chance because of where the client fell ill. Our position is that he contracted the coronavirus while stuck in the San Francisco Bay. And as a consequence, he was not outside the three-mile limit of the United States shores for the defendants to invoke the Death on the High Seas Act. Then there's fraud surrounding unemployment benefits. Billions of dollars in unemployment benefits have been ripped off in many states and in many cases by inmates in various prisons, some of whom fraudulently applied for benefits and others who intercepted debit cards used to distribute those benefits. Attorney Brian Danitz is suing Bank of America. At Bank of America, uh, which has the exclusive contract 
to distribute unemployment funds to unemployment recipients in California, they should have known that fraud was going to pick up and they saw it happening and they did not put in the measures that needed to be put in to protect the unemployment recipients. Bannon says the claimants keep calling. Hundreds and hundreds of people who are desperate. They've lost their only lifeline. I've heard from a father of three who's now sleeping in his car with his family. I've heard from someone who gets prescription medicine that he can no longer afford. These stories are coming in every day, and it is very sad. And there's no relief in sight. That's why we filed our complaint. Another area of law that's expanding due to the pandemic, workers' comp. It's no wonder that business owners are concerned about bringing their workers back to work because they are concerned that they will not be covered if the worst happens. If somebody contracts the virus at work and, and sues. Nishimura agrees. I think some employers are very concerned. This is why they're not requiring all their employees to come back. They're asking them to. As for those cruisers, Carnival CEO Arnold Donald says, despite the ascension of litigation, he's not concerned. Business looks good. There'll be plenty of pent-up demand, as is evidenced by the bookings already. Um, as you look at uh, late 21 and, and um, a sec- first half, second half, 22, uh, where the bookings are stronger. Uh, than they were even prior to COVID um, on the same basis. Which begs the question, why would cruisers want to get back on a boat after what happened in 2020? People love the experience. What remains to be seen is how all this will shake out post-pandemic, which has yet to arrive. In San Francisco, I'm Greg Jarrett, Bloomberg Radio. There by Greg Jarrett with some good tunes as well. Greg Jarrett joins us now. Greg, I, it, just a great piece. Uh, I can't imagine the amount of litigation that's going to flow from this pandemic and the economic disruption. It will be keeping lawyers busy for years. I want to focus on the cruising business because that just fascinates me. I, I mean, I've never been on a cruise, but if I were to board a cruise ship, I I recognize I'm basically boarding a floating petri dish. Don't I assume some risk there, I guess? Well, it's not so much that fall as what she was talking about, the Death on the High Seas Act enacted in 1920. If you're beyond the three-mile limit of the U.S. or any other country that has laws against uh, laws that would enforce wrongful death suits, it doesn't count because there's this Death on the High Seas Act and there's other laws. And the ship is its own little country floating out there. So uh, you (laughs) you don't have a whole lot of rights. Maritime law, absolutely fascinating. How does how do insurance industries deal with this? Well, it's it's interesting because the insurance companies uh, are pretty much fighting it tooth and nail every step of the way, and the law is pretty much on their side. If you look at it, if you Google it, if you do a search, you see that most of the lawsuits have already been dismissed. It's only the ones that were within that three-mile limit that are being uh, held up. In any case, uh, it's being pursued, and new law is being made, just like with the Internet, you guys. Remember, when we started Internet, uh, they always had laws against murder. They had laws against theft. But they had to refashion the laws in order to be able to fit the Internet usage of the crimes. Now they're having to refashion law to fit a pandemic mm-hmm. and also what's going on in the high season. And by the way, as far as employers are concerned and businesses, 
there were already many exclusions in there that specifically read not in the case of a pandemic. All right, well, this is great. For yeah, it's it's, inter- it's interesting. It's you know just as part of the stimulus packages. You know when I see you know the numbers being banded about, it just screams organized crime. Uh, I'm sure when they see those dollars, they just say, "Boy, there's a gold a gold mine." Oh, there, right? Yeah, if you have the ability to intercept electronically on the internet, and this brings two sets of laws together, if you're able to intercept that, why not spend the money? And that's uh, what a lot of people in prison apparently are saying, according to the attorneys that I interviewed. Uh, that the, it's just rampant with billions wow. of dollars. And that's another question. How are the states going to recoup that? How are they going to come back from that on top of, the, of, the, uh, of, of all the stimulus that has already been paid out? Where will that money come from? It'll be interesting to see if a solution is found for people who do want to go on a cruise. If Paul does want to pull the trigger <laughs> on that carnival, uh, you know, Caribbean sure. dream. But... Uh, you know, are worried about this. Maybe you can buy some additional insurance that will cover you even um, when you are at high C. Greg Jarrett, thanks very much for that reporting. Great package. Well, some news out this morning about uh, Fox Corporation. Voting machine company Dominion is suing Fox News over election claims. The suit is, amounts to $1.6 billion. Let's get the latest on this. We turn to Larry, Eric Larson, U.S. legal reporter for Bloomberg News. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here. What do we know about this suit? Uh, well, it is a $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox, um, accusing the company of a, a really huge defamation campaign. Um, over its coverage of the aftermath of the November election. Um, You know, the Fox is accused of falsely accusing Dominion of of rigging the 2020 election by flipping millions of votes away from Donald Trump, falsely claiming that the company had ties to Venezuela and uh, Hugo Chavez, and accusing it of uh, paying kickbacks to government officials to use its machine. So it's pretty wide-ranging claims here. How... Difficult will this be to prove? How difficult are defamation suits um, to prove in court? Uh, they can be pretty tough. Um, you know, they, there's a lot of uh, there's a First Amendment defense, and and when a case like this, they might have to prove uh, that Fox intentionally, like knowingly, made these these uh, false claims um, rather than unintentionally, and that they did so with actual malice. They just sort of disregarded the truth. Um, and it can be a, a difficult um, uh, thing to prove, but Dominion says that they have just tons of evidence here. Uh, with all the exhibits in the complaint, it comes out over 400 pages, uh, lots of screenshots and transcripts of uh, guests and, and on-air talent um, on Fox News uh, saying, um, claim, making claims about Dominion that were just frankly not true. Um, and, and it wasn't just that they were saying, hey, we made a mistake here. They had, the Dominion says that they pointed out these errors over and over again, um, and that Fox chose to sort of ignore that according to, to the suit and just continue to um, spread these, these lies about the election uh, in order to keep viewers. Um, it really was about an, an economic interest, according to Dominion. They say that, that Fox was really concerned about its share uh, value, its loss of viewership um, after uh, Trump viewers turned to more conservative outlets after the election, and they said that this was a specific campaign by Fox to spread these lies to keep viewers and to save its stock price. All right, so Eric, I mean, Dominion's been very aggressive with its legal strategy here. They've sued 
Rudy Giuliani, they've sued former Trump campaign attorney Sidney Powell, the MyPillow CEO, uh, Mike Lindell. What really is their strategy here? Are they really looking um, to, to drive these suits all the way to the end, or are they maybe just trying to make a point? Um, I have spoken with uh, Dominion CEO and its lawyers. Um, they are absolutely 100 uh, percent ready to go to trial. That's what they say they want here. In fact, they say that the trial, when all of this uh, supposed evidence um, about the Dominion's activities is supposed to come forward, you know, that's when they say it'll be obvious that it was all a lie. So they are, they're not joking around. You know, they say they want, they want to take these as far as they can. They want it to go to trial. They want the world to see that this evidence of vote manipulation does, doesn't exist and that they never had any of this evidence they claim to have. Uh, so, you, you know, it's uh, the, the ones that you mentioned earlier, the suit against Giuliani and Sidney Powell and Mike Lindell, um, this really sort of like caps it off. It's not to say it's the last one. They've even hinted that they might sue uh, former President Trump as well. Uh, but this is certainly where they've been signaling they're going to go. Um, and, and certainly other suits are probably going to be filed as well. And it's not just Dominion, right? Smartmatic is also another uh, voting machine company is also suing Fox and some of its anchors. I thought it was interesting. The anchors are named specifically in the suit. Yeah, the Smartmatic uh, suit that was filed earlier, for example, uh, named Lou Dobbs. Uh, shortly after that suit was filed, uh, you know, his show was canceled. Um, that Fox did not say it was for that reason, uh, but uh, a lot of people drew that conclusion. Um, uh, but I should point out that Fox has moved to dismiss that suit already. Um, and uh, today they said in an emailed statement to me that they plan on fighting this new suit uh, by Dominion as well and so that it's without merit. All right. So, Eric, I mean, is without merit kind of boilerplate response? Is there... What what is kind of the defense for uh, Fox? Is it simply First Amendment? Well, they're going to. Uh, I'm I'm sure that they'll probably argue that they were just doing their jobs as journalists, um, having people come on uh, to discuss in the, you know the most important news of the day, the election. Um, certainly, there were um, allegations of voter fraud that were going around, and they will argue that they uh, were just reporting on those facts. And allowing people to come on and uh, give their opinions. Uh, so uh, Dominion says that that can only get you so far, though. Um, in their complaint, they do spell out uh, they anticipate this defense and point out that, uh, you know, they had made so many attempts to reach out and tell Fox that what they were doing was just spreading lies upon lies um, and that they refused to retract. Uh, what they were saying, and they continued to have uh, folks come on who were spreading what they said were demonstrably false, you know, you, d- demonstrably false claims. It wasn't just an opinion, Dominion says. These were just false claims. All right, Eric, thanks very much for joining us. Eric Larson is a Bloomberg legal reporter talking to us about the lawsuits being brought against Fox and others over the election coverage. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.